I imagine your experience with the relationship between these two things is the same as mine. Faith and circumstances. Now, you may not have faith in Jesus yet, but you have faith in other people or things. And so I wonder if this next statement is really common for all of us on some level. Faith often deteriorates as our circumstances deteriorate. Our confidence in anyone or anything sort of rises and falls based on the circumstances around them. Uh, again, we put our faith in, in many people and things beyond the spiritual. And to some extent, we put our faith in our parents, right? Uh, maybe your faith in your parents used to be strong. But as circumstances deteriorated, maybe they lost a job or they got divorced or sort of struggled with their health, and your faith in them began to deteriorate as well. Uh, maybe you put your faith in your job and sort of this idea of being successful uh, until the world shut down and you lost your job or you lost some income. Or maybe you put your faith in someone else or something else, but then the circumstances led you to believe that person or that thing wasn't worth your faith or maybe wasn't trustworthy anymore. Uh, for those of you who at any point have had faith in God, the same can be true for us. That you had faith in God and so you prayed that he would heal your friend or family member. But then as the circumstances of their diagnosis deteriorated, so did your faith. Uh, maybe you had faith in God at the start of this pandemic, but you feel your faith has deteriorated as the lockdowns and protocols have dragged on and, and even now as we're opened up for the most part. Uh, if we're honest, our faith in God can rise and fall based on the circumstances of life, based on what seems at the time to be the random circumstances of life. And this can seem natural in most parts of our lives that when our circumstances deteriorate, our faith in those things or people deteriorates as well. But I think Peter has a warning for us to pay attention to, to pay attention to something else about our relationship between circumstances and the activity or the perceived inactivity of God. We're in part seven of this series called You're Not Far, and this is Peter's account of the life of Jesus as recorded by Mark. It comes to us as the Gospel of Mark, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, Peter wants his audience to know that after 35 years of following Jesus, he followed Jesus for about 35 years by the time he wrote this, um, with all of his experiences, losing most of his friends, and all the other things he's been through, Peter still believes that Jesus is the Son of God, and he still believes that Jesus is his Messiah. And the theme of Peter's message through Mark comes to us in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. And that's been the focus of this series. The time has come, Jesus said, that the waiting is over because the world has been waiting. The Jewish and the pagan world has been waiting for God to show up in a way that would be clear to them. The time has come, Jesus said, the kingdom of God has come near, which means you're never far. Jesus would say, repent and believe the good news. Now, this basically sort of meant to sort of turn and to face this extraordinary new thing that God had done and that you and I are invited to participate in. Now, at this point in Peter's account about Jesus, Jesus and the disciples have sort of left the region of Galilee up north around the Sea of Galilee, and they're sort of making this long journey south into Judea, and ultimately they're on their way to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover together. And as they're traveling on this journey, Jesus, Jesus continues to sort of flip the paradigms of this world. Now, he flipped the leadership paradigm last week when Jesus said, you know how everyone in this world sort of leads and leverages their own authority? How all the people with power and resources leverage their power and resources so they can get more power and more resources? And then Jesus said this, Not so with you. That that's not how the kind of kingdom that I've come to establish will work. And that I'm not that kind of king. Now, before they could give their objection or excuses, before we can give our excuses, Jesus would sort of take away all the excuses. Jesus talking about himself said this, For even the Son of Man 
came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. So if I've not come to sort of be served, Jesus would say, who are you to think that you're just here to be served? Now, that last part, though, about the ransom for many was really the part that his closest followers just couldn't get their hearts and their minds around, like, what was Jesus talking about? Because as they're on their way from Galilee down to Jerusalem, the crowd following Jesus is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And because they're going to Jerusalem to celebrate a festival, the Passover, there are huge crowds coming from everywhere outside of Jerusalem into Jerusalem at the same time. And the circumstances at this point seem to be pointing to one thing. And so the disciples' faith and what they think Jesus is going to do and who they think Jesus is going to be, that faith is growing. But as we'll see, Jesus' plan and many times God's plan for us are different than we expect and the circumstances seem to indicate. And as Jesus and these crowds enter Jerusalem, there are rumors everywhere. There's a rumor that he actually raised a well-known man named Lazarus from the dead. There's a rumor that he actually healed a blind man named Bartimaeus. And Bartimaeus is now a part of the crowd that's following Jesus into Jerusalem. There's so much energy and there's so much excitement that the Messiah is about to proclaim himself as the king that they have been hoping and waiting for. Today we're going to be starting in Mark chapter 11. Yeah, you can follow along in the Bible app if you don't have the Bible app head to bible.com slash app. Once you're in the app, head to the more menu option in the bottom right corner, select events, and you can find our church. We'll also have the notes and verses on the screen as well. Uh, Again, Mark chapter 11, verse 8. Many in the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of Jesus, and others spread leafy branches they had cut in the fields. And Jesus was in the center of the procession, and the people all around him were shouting, Praise God! And this is also where the term Hosanna, maybe you've heard that, is used. It sort of means save us. And blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And then the crowd says something that sort of brings politics and a bit of misunderstanding into these circumstances. Verse 10. Blessings on the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Praise God in the highest heaven. See, these Jewish people were anticipating that when Jesus gets to Jerusalem, he is going to proclaim himself king over Israel, in spite of the fact that the Roman Empire is ruling over Israel at this time. Now, this would be sort of a new age that the Jewish people had been praying for and looking for for generations, and it seemed to be finally near. And for the 12 disciples, all of that talk about Jesus saying, like, suffering and spitting and flogging and dying was all erased, because clearly Jesus was somehow mistaken. And there's so much energy and there's so much excitement on their way to Jerusalem. And when they get to Jerusalem in the late afternoon, They think it's even getting better because Jesus insists they immediately go straight to the temple, which is where they think he would proclaim himself king. And he seems to be wasting no time. Verse 11. So Jesus came to Jerusalem and went into the temple. After looking around carefully at everything, he left because it was late in the afternoon. Then he returned to Bethany with the twelve disciples. He just sort of looks around, doesn't do anything, doesn't teach anything, doesn't say anything. He sort of leaves Jerusalem, and he goes back to the village of Bethany. Now, Bethany was about a two-mile journey from Jerusalem. And the disciples are probably thinking, like, well, that was strange. Like, why did Jesus do that? But then they get up early the next morning to go back to Jerusalem. And the disciples are probably thinking, okay, this is it. And they go straight to the temple. But instead of Jesus doing what they think a Messiah would do, Jesus just sort of seems to make a mess of things. And even if you aren't a Jesus follower, you've probably heard this story before. Verse 15. 
When they arrived back in Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out the people buying and selling animals for sacrifices. He, he knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. And he stopped everyone from using the temple as a marketplace. He said to them, the scriptures declare, my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. That Jesus got everyone's attention, but it was not to declare himself king. He, he accuses the leaders of turning what was designed to be a house of prayer basically into a corrupt business venture. And of course, the chief priests and the leaders of the temple were so upset by this because who does this man think he is? And the disciples are upset by, with this because they think they need friends in Jerusalem and they think they need friends in high places if Jesus is actually going to become king. Verse 18, when the leading priests and teachers of the religious law heard what Jesus had done, they began planning how to kill him. But they were afraid of him because the people were so amazed at his teaching. And they were amazed not at his miracles, but actually at his teaching. And again, Jesus would leave Jerusalem and he spends the night outside the city. And then the next day he comes back and again he comes back to the temple. And the religious leaders are ready for him this time because they thought he would come back. And so they came up with some questions to try to trick and trap Jesus and sort of separate him from the crowd. Because they think that if they can get the crowd to turn on Jesus, then they can sort of get Jesus away from the crowd and have him executed and get him arrested first and then executed. And so the religious leaders start asking their tricky questions. And he responds with a parable and an example that basically sort of traps them in their own questions. But Jesus' response also makes them incredibly angry. Mark chapter 12, verse 34. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. And as Jesus was leaving the temple that day, one of his disciples said, Teacher, look at these magnificent buildings. Look at the impressive stones in the walls. And this disciple was sort of talking about the structure of the temple itself, and it really was impressive. It was built with massive stones, not weighing 500 pounds, but weighing 500 tons. Jesus replied, yes, look at these great buildings, but they will be completely demolished. Not one stone will be left on top of another. And the disciples definitely didn't understand this at the time, and they likely wouldn't understand this for quite a while, that Jesus was predicting the destruction of the city of Jerusalem and the Jewish temple. And none of the disciples could have imagined that happening. However, 40 years later, on August 6th in the year 70, the Roman legions break through the walls and get into the city. And they were angry after about a four-month battle with the Israelites. And so they lit everything on fire that could burn. And Titus, who was in charge of legions at the time, used Jewish slave labor to literally drag every stone over the edge. And if you visit Jerusalem today and inside the temple, you can see these huge stones that are still lying at the base of the wall. And what Jesus predicted, as unrealistic and unimaginable as it was at the time, actually came true. Now, why is that important? This was another huge paradigm shift, another change in the circumstances. Because as Jesus had said earlier, something greater than the temple had arrived. That there will come a time when the temple will no longer be necessary. It will be obsolete, Jesus would say. Something greater than the temple is near, and it has arrived. That the old was passing away, and the new has come. That the kingdom of God is near, because the king is in town. Now, something new had come, and the new was better. It was, it, the new was portable. That something, something that would make the person beside you every bit as sacred as the temple was sacred. And the Spirit of God was about to inhabit his followers in a new and a special way. And Paul would later say that we are walking temples of God. 
And the time had come, and the kingdom of God had, in fact, come near. Jesus is getting ready to celebrate this incredibly special meal for the Jewish people that had so much historical significance for them. Mark chapter 14, verse 12. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb is sacrificed, Jesus' disciples asked him, Where do you want us to go prepare the meal, the Passover meal, for you? So Jesus sent two of them into Jerusalem with these instructions. As you go into the city, a man carrying a pitcher of water will meet you. Follow him. And sure enough, they go into the city and they find the man carrying the water jar. Uh, they follow him to a house and they prepare a large room on the second floor for Jesus and his disciples to celebrate Passover. And Jesus would eventually arrive with the 12 disciples, including Peter, who again, he gives us this account. Verse 22, as they were eating, Jesus took some bread and he blessed it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples saying, take it for this is my body. Verse 23, and he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. He gave it to them and they all drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice for many. And suddenly it becomes evident that Jesus is sort of changing the meaning of Passover. And he's sort of making it all about himself. Not only that, but like God can only make a covenant between God and his people. And these followers might have thought, like, that's nice, Jesus, but we don't really need a covenant. Like, we need a kingdom, and we were hoping that you were going to be the king of that kingdom. And eventually they, they would leave that upper room, and they would go to the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus would pray there, and he really seemed so disturbed. And then they hear something, and then they see torches coming. And then there's Judas leading the temple guard to arrest Jesus. Verse 48, Jesus asked them, Am I some dangerous revolutionary that you would come with swords and clubs to arrest me? Like, I'm not a fugitive from the law. I've not been hiding from you. Why didn't you arrest me in the temple? I was there among you teaching every day. But these things are happening to fulfill what the scriptures say about me. And then Peter and the other followers make a decision, but specifically Peter makes a decision that he will regret for the rest of his life. Because suddenly, his expectations of Jesus and his experience with Jesus, they don't sort of line up. And then suddenly there's a gap between what Peter expected Jesus to do and who he expected Jesus to be and what he actually experienced. And in that moment, as is often the case for us, then all his disciples deserted Jesus and ran away. Because probably for them, and maybe for you, you felt the same way, when Jesus wasn't coming through for them, uh, there seemed to be little hope. When, when Jesus was being arrested, like, messiahs and saviors of the world can't be arrested, so clearly Jesus was no king. That Jesus was no messiah because there would be no kingdom, probably, if, if this is the case. And after all, it seems normal to assume the worst about God in our worst circumstances. That faith often deteriorates as our circumstances deteriorate. And in those moments, faith is sort of quickly replaced with fear. And Jesus had sort of been changing and flipping paradigms that they thought they knew and understood about life. Uh, you know, where they worshipped, how they found their identity, what and who they celebrated. And Jesus sort of changed all of them. And their circumstances in this moment looked so dire. And if that's you and, and when that's me, I think Peter would have something to say to us. I think he would say, I get it, I understand, I've been there, I've done that. And in the moment when everything seemed dark, and in the moment when suddenly my future went dark, and suddenly I went from being a follower of a popular rabbi to being an outlaw and a fugitive from the law, I believed the lie and I lost hope and I deserted Jesus along with everyone else. And that was a big mistake that led to an even bigger mistake and maybe the greatest regret of my life. 
And in that moment, everything I saw and felt, it led me to the assumption that God is not near. But I think Peter would remind you and Peter would remind me, God is near. That in those dark moments when God seemed distant and still, Peter might say, well, I realize now that he was actually very near and very active, but in ways and circumstances that were different than I imagined. Don't do what I did. Don't abandon your Savior. Don't abandon your Heavenly Father because of circumstances that are different than you expected or imagined. That when your circumstances collide with your faith, you're not far from the kingdom of God. Now, as we wrap up, uh, just a quick reminder that these very people who abandoned Jesus when the circumstances looked so bleak, when there was a gap between what they expected and what they experienced, the very people who left Jesus, who, who fled when he needed them the most, are the same people who would spend the rest of their lives, risking the rest of their lives, ensuring that you and I can know with certainty that God is near and that you're not far. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you for the ways that he would challenge us. He challenged his first century disciples as well. He challenged their paradigms, the way they saw things. He, he challenged their expectations. And he flipped a lot of them upside down as well. And so God, at times we might experience that same thing when, when our circumstances just seem to be so bleak and they seem to be so different than we expected or different than we ever could have imagined. Many times that sometimes is directly related to our faith deteriorating as well. So God, in those moments, maybe we're in that moment right now with the pandemic or with uh, finances or relationships or other things, whatever they might be, in those moments, would you help us to see how you might be trying to navigate us through that? That you might be ch sort of challenging our assumptions about what circumstances might look like. You might be challenging the thing that, that bad things don't happen to good people when in fact, the worst thing happened to the best person, you. So God, whatever that might look like, would you help us to not do what the disciples did? Would you help us not to abandon our faith in you? To not to abandon following you? That we would stay with you and that, God, we would lean on you even harder and even more so during those difficult times when circumstances don't seem to line up with what we expected. So God, would you help our faith to stay in you and not to become faith in us? Would you help us to continue to follow you even through difficult circumstances? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.